Good evening, everybody. Thank you for your invitation. It's lovely to see so many here. I suspect the food had a lot to do with that, but it's great. Uh, anyway, thank you for those who prepared and provided that, and to uh, Pete and Melky for inviting me here. Um, as it says in the literature, if you've seen it, uh, my, well, one of my roles is at Thornbury Baptist Church, a sister Baptist church just up the A38, uh, so it's nice to be here, uh, I guess, with part of the wider Baptist family uh, in the city as well. Uh, and uh, other parts of my role we might talk about as, as we go through. Um, some of you I know, because I came to this church a few times many years ago, uh, and you may recognise me and think, oh, it's him. <laughs> if I'd known it's him, I wouldn't have come. Uh, uh, but anyway, so forgive me if I know you, but I can't remember your name, because I tend to forget after ten minutes, never mind ten years. Um, but I do recognise some, some faces around the room, which is, which is lovely. Um, so I've lived in Yates for 30 odd years, which is much to my surprise because uh, my wife and I moved to the Bristol area on a five-year contract with Scripture Union as a schools worker and kind of got stuck um, as God used us in planting a church in Yates, which we then kind of grew up with and, and stayed with uh, over many years. So I have a wife, I have uh, three children who are now themselves married and have produced five grandchildren. Uh, so I'm even older than I look, and I look pretty old, um, I know. So it's, it's a major readjustment and recalibration in life when someone comes up to you and calls you granddad. Um, I know some people get traumatised by 30, 30th birthdays and 40th birthdays and big birthdays. I never had any trouble with those, but when someone looks you in the eye and calls you granddad, I suddenly thought, really? Who, me? Um, so anyway, that's just enough about me uh, anyway, but uh, it's great to be here with you tonight to talk about what I think is a really, really important theme. I'm delighted that you're wanting to, to think about it together, this theme of discipleship. Um, I suppose I, I've been involved in Christian ministry now for, for well, over 30 years, knocking on 35 years, and, and through those 35 years, been aware of different emphases that have, have come through the church and come through the Christian world, and which I myself have been, been part of and signed up to and so on. Um, but as life has gone on, I've become more and more convinced that actually this theme is the central theme of all the other things. Um, and uh, I hope to justify that bold claim uh, as we go through these, these sessions together and hope to convince you of it uh, as well. Um, but what I'm going to do tonight is just open up the subject a little bit and be, be fairly introductory about that. Um, I heard a story a little while ago of a, a captain of a seagoing ship who, before the ship left port, had a little routine, which was that he would go to a locked drawer on the bridge of the ship and unlock the drawer, take out a little slip of paper, read what was on the paper, put it back in the drawer, lock the drawer, and then go through the processes that required to, to leave the port. And the crew became increasingly intrigued as to what might be on this piece of paper. And they began to have conversations about what was on the paper. Uh, could it be an inspirational poem, or perhaps a love letter from, from a wife? Or what, what was it that the captain needed to read to get him ready for the journey before he left port every single time? And one day, one of the junior ratings on the bridge decided that he could wait no longer, so he, when the captain wasn't around, took the key and unlocked the drawer and unrolled the paper. And everyone was standing there with bated breath, waiting for the news to be announced as to what the captain needed to read before the ship left port every time, and when the rating turned round and read it, it simply said, port left, starboard right. <laughs> um, which, I guess, wasn't particularly new, but was really, really important. Um, and uh, I guess what we're going to be doing over some of these sessions, for some of us, uh, will not be revolutionary new stuff. I personally have had enough of that. Um, the latest big idea that's going to save and change the world. But maybe this is more in the category of port left, starboard right. Those vital directional things that we need to keep paying attention to as Christians and as church to keep us moving in the direction that God wants, wants us to be moving in. So I'm going to start off um, trying to depress you for a few minutes. So if you come in feeling happy, uh, this is the moment where I just prick that bubble. If you come in feeling depressed, then I think there are trained counsellors in the room um, uh, and, and, and you might need their help. But you will probably know, if, even if you don't know the, uh, the numbers and, and, and the data, that the Christian community in the West, and particularly in our part of the West, is in decline. 
We're not part of a growing, mushrooming, burgeoning movement. And however you measure that, whether you measure it by affiliation, people who say that they are Christian, uh, which of course people in the last two major censuses in Britain were asked to name which religion they identified with. And you may remember back to the 2001 census when we were all very cock a hoop because the 2001 census revealed that 70 to 80% of the country thought of themselves as Christian. Um, and we had this kind of momentary thought, of, really? Oh, maybe things aren't as bad as we, we thought. As we looked around our diminishing church congregations, we perhaps were tempted for a moment to think perhaps things weren't as bad as all that. Uh, in the 2011 census, that number had declined to 59% claiming to be Christian. And of course, this is a, a figure which is almost meaningless because nobody quite knows what people thought they were indicating when they ticked that particular box. What they clearly weren't indicating was regular participation in the life of a local church and orthodox belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Nevertheless, in our culture, there is this kind of memory, which appears to be a receding memory, of being thought of as Christian. But it's the tides on its way out. And if you didn't factor in the growth in about the only parts of the Christian church that are growing at the moment, which is the ethnic minority churches, then the situation becomes even more dire. So the decrease in the Christian community since 2001 would have been 5.8 million people by this measure, if it hadn't been offset by the growth in the ethnic minority Christian uh, affiliation. So if you look at the charts and compare them, most of the orthodox Christian denominations, most of them are in decline, whereas the black-led churches and other ethnic minority churches are, are still moving up, largely because of, of immigration, not necessarily because of mission and evangelism. I'm sure you, you, you go to bed looking at these sorts of things anyway, but just um, in case you have forgotten your own data here in Redland, um, around you, 46.8% uh, of people claimed or ticked the Christian box in 2011, um, which is lower than the national average. Um, and if you look at um, the number that ticks no religion or religion not stated, which is kind of, most people think that's no religion anyway. Um, the numbers are roughly the same around here, of people who say, I, I don't believe in any of that stuff at all, and those who are still willing to tick the Christian box. So affiliation, that kind of broad category, uh, the numbers are in decline. If you look at attendance of churches, the graph is even more striking over the last century. Um, the numbers progressively going down, and there's a trajectory assumed until 2020. Um, and it's reckoned by 2040, some of our erstwhile major denominations will have gone out of business, pretty much. Salvation Army and Methodists being the most vulnerable. Um, so, uh, in terms of people actually attending churches, I'm sure, again, this is not news, you probably already picked this up by just looking around on a Sunday, even if not by looking at statistics you'll realise that we in the West are in a missionary context where the Christian story is being less and less owned and where Christian participation is, the, the graph just keeps going down and down. There is, however, a growing number of people who adhere to the Christian message but don't want anything to do with church. They're often called the de-churched, those that were in church once but no longer go. Sometimes they're called the duns, those that are done with church. Uh, that, church that group, interestingly, is, is growing. Um, they form a group twice the size of those who attend church regularly and might comprise 33% of the population, according to a tier fund, uh, a tier fund piece of research done, done a few years back. So these people had once sat in our churches, had once taught in our Sunday schools, had once been part of the Christian story and the Christian community, uh, but now still often own faith, but want nothing to do with organised church or, or organised religion. Sometimes almost 40% of, of the country apparently may well be in that category, according to research that's, that's done. Which is kind of a bit of a mixed bit of good news, isn't it? Um, the graph's going up, but we're not too sure what that means. And we've got quite a number of those in Thornbury uh, who've been part of churches. They've either got burnt out, they've got hurt, 
They just can't believe what they think they have to believe to go anymore. And, and quite a number of people who don't want to completely ditch the label Christian, but don't want to be part of any kind of organised group that are, uh, are trying to live together as, as church and as community. So that's adherence. Are you, are you depressed yet? I'm doing my best. Uh, uh, let's think about believing. What do people actually believe in our culture around here? Uh, While well, 77% of people believed, this is a, a piece of research done again a few years ago, 77% of people believe that there are things in life that we simply cannot explain through science or other means, and that there is a spiritual current, quote, running through society, 87% do not believe in a personal God, and 70% do not believe in a God of any kind. Now, that sets us quite a long way back as Christians when we're trying to when we're trying to communicate our message. If the fundamentals of faith, according to Hebrews, is to believe that there is a God, <laughs> then we're starting from a long way back in the story. We're no longer trying to bring people back to a story that they've rejected, we're trying, uh, that, that, that they know and kind of are warm to. We're trying to, trying to talk to people about a story they've just they're done with. So to get inside some of the major denominations, uh, the Church of England last year uh, put out a piece of research, and these are some of their findings. Um, average weekly attendance was down by another 1% over the year. All age usual Sunday attendance had halved since 1968. 29% of the worshipping community are 70 or over. 9% fall in the electoral roll membership since its last revision in 2007. Christmas and Easter attendance and communicants which is significant because that's where most people do go to church if they're going to go both down. More churches declining than growing. Only one diocese in the whole of Britain has increased its average weekly attendance. A few more have increased Sunday attendance, but the rest are in decline or in a few cases static. The Church of England uh, is struggling to maintain its core identity marker, which is total coverage of the country. Um, to do that, an, a decreasing number of vicars and ministers and priests are working with a diminishing number of elderly people in more and more church buildings. Um, which is not good news if you're a vicar or priest in the church, believe me, I know some of them, and uh, it doesn't feel like it's good news. The national church is not really the national church anymore, or certainly soon won't be. So, the Methodists, bless them. I worked for the Methodist Church for five years, so I have a little bit of insight, uh, insight into this. Um, but the Methodists celebrated more than twice as many funerals as baptisms last year, as latest figures show a decline in membership of one-third over the last decade. 33% of their members over the last decade, basically because they're dying off. Most of the Methodist chapels that I visited, I, was, I would have been in the youth group had I chosen to join. Seriously. The Methodist Church, which began collecting membership figures in 1766, said that every day on average, over the last decade, 16 Methodists have died, while just seven new people have joined the church. And I'm sure something called the Methodist Church will continue to exist, but in terms of a national Methodist church, its days are numbered again. And you know, because you've seen driving around Bristol, and if you've been further down the West Country, Cornwall, Methodist chapel after Methodist chapel that's now a home or a carpet warehouse or a gym or, or, or something else, they make fantastic refurbished properties. But very few of them, a uh, decreasing number of still churches. And so we have this interesting phenomenon where some of these declining denominations have quite significant wealth generated from selling off buildings but actually less and less mission opportunity to use that wealth for but that wealth can actually mask the pain of the decline because you can initiate projects that look like you're doing something so so that's just um, in the leaflet that, that, that was put round it says this session Understanding the centrality of discipleship to being church and doing mission 
in our cultural contemporary context. Well, that's just one aspect of our contemporary cultural context. A context where people don't know the story, a context where people have never been to church, a context where people that knew the story have given up on it and moved away from it in the main, a context where many churches are in decline, a context where congregations are ageing. Just turn to people on your table and say how you're feeling at the moment. Okay, so do that. Do that. Every so often I can ask you to talk to people. So just, just, just turn to people around you and say, how am I feeling right now? Okay, I'm going to interrupt. Anybody just want to throw any thoughts into the big group from that early conversation just as we get going? Any initial responses from anyone you want to... Public, make public. I'm surprised at how many dams there were. I know we've got one or two, but I didn't realise there being such a big population. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, they're, they're, it is a very significant group. It's a very significant group. And, and the, the 40% is reckoned to divide into two. So there are, there are the positive de churched and the negative de churched. So half of them have been hurt or scarred or, or whatever and basically are never going back. And they're probably the hardest group, even harder than the unchurched, to reach because of the anger and the bitterness and the hurt they can. The positive de-church, so people just drifted away at a life transition moment or moved house and stopped going, whatever. And so there is a group there that would be more warm towards church but have just lost the habit or lost a good connection with, with church. But yes, it's a big group. Thanks for playing that up. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think they. I think they span across the ages. But you're quite right. And what I think you're suggesting is that it's it's a, a younger generation, the generation before mine, at least, the so-called Generation Y uh, phenomenon. I think. I mean, actually, my three sons still go to something that looks like a recognisable church, but I can see that, that most of their peers would probably be in this group, the ones that grew up with the youth, in the youth group with them in Christ Rock and Yate. Most of the rest would be in that category now. Anybody else want to make a comment? Yes? Yes. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, I hadn't heard that particular statistic, but I'm not surprised by it based on what I've seen in travelling around over the last few years at different, different churches. Yes, 76% with no youth. And probably youth is defined as anyone under 40. I'm guessing, because usually the category is quite large when they do those sorts of statistical things. Yeah. Um, which, you know, should, if nothing else comes out this evening, should make you thank God for what's going on here at the moment and treasure and honour any youth and children's activity that's happening here in this church because you are one of the exceptions in the National Church of Britain. So if you're a children or youth worker here tonight, more power to you. And uh, bless you for what you're doing. Anyway, any, any other comment on this early stuff? It obviously is intended to depress you, but I do think we need to... We live in the real world, and this is the real world. You know, we can, if we've been around church for a long time, we can live in a certain unreality. And clearly, if it's, it's, it's like any part of life. If you turn up on an occasion wearing the wrong clothes, you're going to, you know, you're just not going to cope. If you dress in winter, as over summer, and vice versa. If the church doesn't dress for the occasion it's in, is the metaphor I'm trying to make some ham fistedly. Uh, if we pretend we're somewhere we're not, then we're never going to engage. We need to take stock of where we are and the culture we're actually living in. And of course, some of these denominations are beginning to do this. So, um, okay, my computer just did something unexpected. I hate it when it does that. Um, Apple products, not the No, not the Apple product. No, no, they never go wrong. It's the, it's the user. That's the problem. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, 
So, um, obviously those denominations are not just sit- sitting back and feeling depressed. They're, they're doing a considerable amount of so much creative work to try and think, how do we address this? What, what do we do? How do we respond to our own decline? Um, and part of the, um, the rubric after the Anglican Church report that I summarised on the screen earlier uh, contained these words. It means we need actually and practically to believe that spirit-empowered lay people, disciples, are the engine room of the church. The, the insight is that just running church isn't enough. That actually we need to change our focus and recognise what church really is. Now this is quite a big thing for Anglicans. They're catching up. Everyone's going to be Anabaptist eventually, is my contention. <laughs> that actually church is disciples. And to run something called church without paying attention to making disciples is a nonsense. It just cannot be done. Um, and the Anglicans, it seems, at least from that sentence, which may, you know, may be unfair to put that on the board of Anglicanism because they're not all there, but that statement, at least, suggests we need to focus on, on the discipleship agenda. I mean, incidentally, I meant to say at the beginning as a kind of a, 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 a health warning thing, although I've called this session Beyond Church... I put church in inverted commas because I, well, I'm not a person who's against church. I love church. I do what I do because I'm passionately committed to church. But I do think we need to get beyond ways that we've traditionally thought about church. And that's what we're kind of talking about here tonight, which is why church is in those inverted commas. So the Methodists, Martin Atkins, who is the, um, super, the, the chief guy, I can't remember his title, super something, um, in, in the Methodist church, said this, If ever we needed any encouragement to continue to focus on those things that make for an ever better church, which is a discipleship movement shaped for mission today, then these statistics provide that. And that phrase has become a kind of a banner over the way that the contemporary Methodist church are trying to think about themselves. And I actually love that phrase as a descriptor of church, a discipleship movement shaped for mission. I love that, that assembly of words. Um, and there's a recognition in Methodism who, obviously in their roots, if you don't know, back in the 18th century, uh, you know, this was kind of where they came from. And some of the things we're going to be thinking about over these next three weeks actually draw on some of those early, early roots of Methodism. Because they were the people who actually understood, John Wesley was the person that understood, that if people are coming to faith, you can't just dump them in dead churches you need to work with them, you need to help them, you need to enable them to grow, and you need to keep doing that throughout your whole life. Um, so anyway, Methodism is moving in that direction. Basically what we're seeing is this idea that churches are what happens on a Sunday, and if we just do that right, people will come along. If you've still got that idea, I really want to encourage you to try... And it's a hard thing for those of us that have been in church for a long time to get rid of that idea. Um, the idea that what we want to do is to have some leaders that do ministry to a bunch of Christians and call that church in order that when we do it well enough, the world around will suddenly wake up and come back. If you're still living with any vestige of that dream, can I gently, politely, but directly say you've got to get over it? Because all the statistics that I have just shown you and every bit of cultural analysis that's done would suggest that people are not waking up around here on a Sunday morning just waiting for you to get your meetings right so that they come back. A, they never came in the first place, not just to here or to anywhere. But B, it's just not on their radar screen. Most people in our culture walk past a church and have roughly the same set of thoughts that I have when I walk past a betting shop. I've no idea what happens in there. I've got no interest in going in to find out. I'm a bit alarmed at what might happen if I did go in because I wouldn't know my way around and what do I fill out and which screen do I look at. And, and anyway, I'm just not interested. And the majority of people in our culture will walk past our buildings and have much the same reaction as I have to a betting shop, I would suggest. Now... That's, that's a really important thing to get over. And we, the, the way we try and get over it, though, is it's a hard dream to knock. It's a hard legacy to kind of shake off. And I know that in, in the churches that I've been part of. Those of us that are running churches have often been in church for a long time. And this is our cultural memory. 
This is the golden age when Spurgeon stood up and preached and thousands of people came in off the streets. You know, there's a kind of golden age memory which makes us think that if we just get church right, people will come. Um, but somehow or other we've got to think about our role as missionaries different to a wait, and come, wait, wait until they come model. And I should say that although this cultural story that we're living in is changing, the story of God isn't. And so God is still intent on the salvation of every individual and intent on the reconciliation of all things to himself through the death of his son. So there is still a mission story which overarches the story of decline in our, in our culture. So we can't just duck out and kind of take the woe is us, we'll just sit tight and decline until Jesus comes back and we hope it's soon before we have to turn the building into a bingo hall. You know, we can't just kind of bunker down and say, well, if the, you know, the world's going to the dogs anyway, so let's just say as holy as we can until Jesus comes back. There's a mission story that God's still involved in. There's, there's a sending story, there's a saving story, there's a healing, a blessing story that we're still charged with. But we can't outwork that story by sitting tight and running to our churches better and better and putting everything into our gathered activity. So what do we do when we, when we recognise that people are not coming to church anymore? Well, we we, we, we recognise that we're still called to be kind of fruitful. This, this arid, barren, spiritual desert called Redland. Uh, we're still hoping that fruit might grow here, that grass might grow here. It's maybe not a good metaphor, but you know what I'm trying to say anyway. So what do we do? Well, here's some typical responses that, 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 that churches and Christians have tried. We increase our effort, but change nothing. So we just keep trying to do what we've been doing all along, and, and we just do it harder and harder and grit our teeth and bemoan the fact that, that no one's coming. Or, more positively, we actually try and improve what we have. So typically in some traditions they get rid of the pews, they bring in... Uh, soft seating, uh, they would serve donuts before the service, you know. so, so they'd, they'd come up with ways of improving the product. Sorry if you've done that here. Uh, I saw a few knowing smiles at that point, so if I hit any raw nerves, I haven't been primed to do that. It's done in naivety, I, I can assure you. But we just try and improve what we have in, in, in some way. We change the time of the services because people don't get it. So, so but basically the model is still the same. We just try and make it a better model. Or we import a program that appears to have worked somewhere else for someone else. So we become seeker sensitive or purpose driven or whatever the latest thing. I call this the willow driven cell song approach. Um, which some of you will get and some of you may wonder what on earth I want about. Imagining that what works in a church of 20,000 people in a wealthy suburb of Los Angeles could possibly work in downtown Bristol or even in uptown Bristol. It, it ignores all of the obvious things. That means it may have some benefit, but it cannot necessarily produce the same results as it does somewhere else. So that, I don't, I've got no great faith in that, although I do want to be humble enough to learn from what other people are doing, what God's doing in other places. So I don't want to ditch all of that, but I also want to be wise in what I take from that. And fourthly, uh, what we try and do is, is we improvise new ways of being church. Anglicans and Methodists have kind of gone for this fresh expressions label. Other people are trying new ways of doing church. And some of the duns would still say they're doing church down the pub with their mates on a, on a Friday night. So they still use the label and try and find new ways of doing church. But often, that still ends up basically the same model. If we run our program right, people will come. The program's changed, it's now called Messy Church, and you use crayons rather than needing a hymn book. But fundamentally, you're still in a building running something and hoping that people will come. And although there is some success in the Fresh Expressions movement, uh, it's by no means turning the tide of the figures and statistics that I showed you earlier. The core belief here that if we get church right, people will come, has to be challenged and I, I think shifted. Certainly for me personally, when I finally got to the point where I felt I could accept the fact that that is a myth, everything changed. 
in the way that I thought about church and my own role and what I wanted from people. Because the problem is if getting church right means getting our organised activities right, your role is restricted in the little bit of spare time you've got to turning up and running the activities. So leaders become recruiters of volunteers to run stuff. And the time that we might have had for other things is leached out of the world and brought back into the building. Incidentally, there is a little rule when I speak, which is that every so often I find it really encouraging if you nod or smile or grunt. (laughs) It doesn't have to mean anything from behind your mask, but I just take it as a real encouragement if every so often you would nod or smile or grunt, because if you don't, I would assume you haven't really understood what I just said, and I just say it all again. So it's, it's really in your best interest, just occasionally, to burst into life. I'm not looking for hallelujah or an amen, I'm not expecting anything like that in Kenjo Baptist Church, but I would. (laughs) (laughs) I'm teasing, I'm teasing, you know that. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so so churches that attract, so here's a different way of drawing the model, which is to think about churches that infect, rather than churches that attract, churches that infect. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, talked about a good infection. And he kind of drew this illustration out. And he said, if you, wanted, if, if you stand next to someone for long enough and they've got a cold, you will catch the cold. How about thinking what it would mean to have a good infection? In other words, we want people to catch what we've got. Now, they're not going to come in if they think we've all got colds. But if we sneak out amongst them... <laughs> So this is a movement from doing ministry to forming ministers, and the same elements are on the diagram. But now the role of those in the church is to equip those who are living in the normal, everyday world, where 70-odd percent of people don't believe that God exists, and saying, "How? what would it look like for you to do ministry where you are? So ministry is about what we all do every day when we get up in the morning through to when we go to bed at night. Whether we do it at home, whether we do it at Tesco's, whether we do it in in an office, whether we do it with kids, wherever we do it, in a hospital or Mission and ministry is what we all do when we leave our front door in the morning. And for a few of us, it might be what we do even before that. And what would it mean if our gatherings were about equipping us to go out and do that? Now, you may remember, some of you look like you might remember, the very early centuries of the Christian church. Um, (laughs) When you should, <laughs> don't pick on John. I know John. I know John. He can turn nasty. He's got a nasty side. He looks, he looks very happy and benevolent. But you know. Uh, so in the, in the early, cha- early centuries of the Christian Church, from the time of the Upper Room in Acts chapter one, through to three fifteen, when the Emperor Constantine became a Christian and the whole empire became Christian, so say at that point. The church experienced its most significant and profound period of growth probably throughout its whole history. It grew enormously from those 120 people clustered, scared for their life in the upper room, burst into those 3,000 people who came to faith on the day of Pentecost and then scattered all across the Mediterranean basin and further east and, uh, and so on, such that by the time Constantine came to power, he had to recognise the Christians as a significant grouping within the empire which he was running. Now the interesting thing is that through those three centuries there's no indication that the church did mission in the way that we do mission and certainly they didn't sit and wait for non-believers to come because in the main non-believers were banned from meetings in case they were actually spies for the persecuting Roman emperors or, or whatever. So the early Christians actually made it in the main made it quite difficult for non-believers to join their their meetings. And yet, the church grew enormously during that period of time. And what you find often is when the church is kind of in that minority situation, feeling squeezed and pressurised, it reconfigurates itself to grow. Story from the 1980s in Ethiopia, when a Marxist regime came to power and the Christian churches were banned they lost their buildings, they lost their right to meet, and, and the church went underground for several years until that regime was overthrown. 
When, after about 10 years, I can't remember the exact figure, but about 10 years, the regime changed and the Christians came out of their hiding holes and were allowed to go back to their buildings and rebuild them, the buildings were no longer big enough. Because the church had grown in so much as an underground movement that when they resurfaced, uh, they needed more accommodation. See, what the church learned in those times is that, that what you do together actually resources you for what you do alone. You can't bring people together, but you can make a difference when you scatter. And that's fundamentally the, the, the model that, that, that the discipleship language moves us towards. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek uh, and his Willow Creek Association, some of you would have heard the name. Anyone been there to Willow Creek? Okay, great. So you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, but I'm not wrong on So a couple of years ago, they did a major piece of research because they'd been successful in attracting large numbers of people. But they also began to recognise that the spiritual dynamic of the church was still pretty much unchanged. People came to meetings, but that was about it. The, 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 the benchmark of what it meant to be committed was that you came to the meetings. That's what it meant to be a committed Christian. And they began to say, that's not what we wanted. We didn't just want to fill up this great barn of a place with more and more people. We wanted to actually bring people to faith in such a way that their lives made a difference in the world. And it wasn't happening. So they did some research. And this is an extract from the writer. We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. Forgive the language, is it good? We should have gotten people, again, forget the names. We should have gotten people and taught people how to read the Bible between services and how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. Hybels indicated that the emphasis on programs and meetings did not necessarily produce disciples. And we're going to think about what a disciple is and, and, and so on, so we're preempting that conversation a little bit. But another contention here is. If mission is not done by sitting tight and waiting for people to come, discipleship isn't done just by sitting in church meetings. Something else needs to happen to form authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. The Willow Creek experience, where they were gathering tens of thousands of people, but not actually making disciples, is testimony to the fact that something else is required if we're going to take discipleship rather than church attendance seriously. So that's what we're thinking about. Fresh Expressions, I mentioned earlier, Graham Cray, Bishop Graham Cray, who for a long time was heading up the Fresh Expressions movement. And if you, you know about the Fresh Expressions uh, movement, some of you are nodding vigorously, some of you are looking like, is he nearly finished? Uh, so the Fresh Expressions movement is, is, is within Anglicanism and Methodism, uh, trying to find new ways of being church. That was one of the mantras, new ways of doing church, meeting different venues, organising meetings differently, and so on and so forth. And they themselves did a review and there was quite a lot of success in terms of attracting people along who didn't formally go to church. But Graham Cray began to realise that, again, attracting people along to a fresh expression isn't what it's all about. And he wrote this, The test of the ministry of any church is the quality of the disciples being made. Now that's a hard thing to measure. But typically... You can disagree with anything I'm saying. Okay, I'm not the Pope, so I'm not speaking ex cathedra uh, tonight. But I would suggest that typically the quality of our churches has been more important than the quality of our disciples. Running good meetings, having a good vibe, great worship, great teaching, great music group, great kids' work. We're a good church. But we need something more than that if we're going to change society. We need something more, a, a more profound marker, a more profound measure of what we're up to. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sorry to put all the quotes on the screen, but often I've got nothing particularly valuable to say, so if I put up some quotes from other people, you might get something valuable out of the whole experience. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another nod? Okay. So if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, just afterwards ask someone who just nodded and test them. <laughs> Call their bluff. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, executed by the Nazis, tried to... Um, tried to stand against the way the German church caved in to Hitler and just acquiesced to what Hitler was up to and started a new movement. He was imprisoned and he was tragically executed just a few days before the very end of the world in a German prison camp. And it is from his prison cell he wrote letters and papers to, to a friend and those letters and papers have been collected together. And 
one of the things he mused on in his prison cell was how could the church make a difference in a culture like Nazi Germany? An oppressive, anti-Christian culture. What, what kind of church would we need to be? Obviously not the kind of church that he criticised as caving in to the culture of, of Nazism, but, 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 but what would we need to do? And it's a, it's a little bit of a longer quote, so forgive that, but it's, it's uh, I love one of the stuff, so it's my indulgence. And you won't read this, this is a bit like Specsavers, I appreciate that. Okay. Is it better like this, or like this? Okay. He said this, I believe, I know inwardly, I shall be really clear and honest only when I've begun to take seriously the Sermon on the Mount. Here is set the only source of power capable of exploding the whole enchantment and spectre of Hitler and his rule, so that only a few burnt-out fragments are left remaining from the fireworks. Here's the bit. The restoration of the church will surely come from a sort of new monasticism, which has in common with the old only the uncompromising attitude of a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount in the following of Christ. I believe it's now time to call people to this. Powerful call. He's saying that actually reformatting our... I'm paraphrasing him and probably diminishing therefore what he's trying to say, but, but he's saying that actually reformatting our churches is not the issue. We need to reformat lives. We need people who are actually meaning business in this thing. We're actually going to sign up to what it really means to follow Jesus Christ, not just to turn up to serve coffee on a Sunday morning. We, we need a, kind of a new monasticism, people who are committed and devoted and regular to give, ready to give everything for the sake of Christ, wherever they are. That was his rallying cry. And, it, and it, I resonate with that. Not that I'm there, but I resonate as a challenge to me as well. Dallas Willard. Final quote from him. Anyone know Dallas Willard? Okay, so well read. And see, I got. Yeah, great. Dallas Willard died last year. Very sad. He was a great writer on discipleship. Heard him speak once. A lovely man. Uh, and he he wrote this quote to the American church, but I think it equally fits the British church. Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. The thing we don't like to talk about, but it's clearly there. It's not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christian and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it's an accepted reality. It's okay to define Christianity as church going or commitment to service. But he's saying, actually, there's a deeper thing called discipleship, which we've just made, it's okay not to be a disciple, but to somehow think you're functioning as part of the church. More positively, on the other side of the coin, he said this, if those in our churches really are enjoying fullness of life, Evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. In other words, if we really do take on the life and character of Jesus Christ, if we really do give ourselves to personal committed discipleship, something will begin to change us that doesn't mean then we go out to do evangelism, but we naturally overflow with a different life. Isn't that what Jesus was pointing to in John chapter 7 when he said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. There's something around the discipleship habit of drinking from Jesus, which then transforms us. We need to think about what that means, and that's part of what we might think about next time. But, but, but I love that quote, and I've seen it. Uh, when I was at, uh, in the at Christ the Rock, uh, you know, we evangelism training courses, all sorts of stuff. But the best evangelists were just the people who naturally overflowed with the love of Jesus in their daily lives. We had a lady called Sally. She ran a beauty salon in Chipping Sobbery. And uh, it's a fantastic place for evangelism because she used to get middle-aged ladies in the main. That isn't an ageist thing, that's just a descriptor. Uh, who would come to her and pay her money so that she could strap them to a table and cover them in mud. <laughs> and tell them not to move for 20 minutes. In that state, she had lots of time to talk to them about Jesus. And they couldn't do a thing about it. 
Um, but she did it in such a way because that's, she loved Jesus. Uh, and I, was, I went into the shop once. I used to go in and just say hello. I, I was a bit, it was a bit like it was, a, it was a bit like the betting shop experience to me. I had no idea really what went on in there. Uh, but I, just because I was passing, I'd go and say hello to Sally. And uh, I, I went in there once and, and talking. And, and a lady came in the door. She's obviously an Irish traveller, I imagine, uh, looking a bit dishevelled, and, and was trying to sell some heather. And, and offered to sort of pronounce a, a good, good luck over the business. And Sally, of course, immediately her hackles rose. Not hackles, but her, what's the word? She was very sensitive to that sort of thing. And she said, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't, we don't do that here. And, and so the woman went out. And I, I would have left it at that. And then Sally said, I should have told her about Jesus. I really should have told her about Jesus. You look after the beauty salon, David, and I'm going to find her and, and uh, <laughs> tell her about Jesus. And sure enough, she went off and had a coffee with her and told her about Jesus. No, it wasn't because we'd done a training course on what to do when an Irish traveller comes up to you and tries to tell you uh, that she wants to uh, bless you with good luck. Um, Sally was, there was just something about Sally. And all of our Alpha courses, Sally would always bring two or three people. In fact, we ran Alpha courses in her beauty salon. And this was just because Sally had had an abusive upbringing. She'd been a virtual alcoholic for a lot of her life. And Jesus had set her free. And Jesus had done something in her life, and she couldn't understand why nobody else would want to experience and have what she had. And so it wasn't uh, an aggressive thing, it was just a love thing. She cared that other people knew Jesus in the way that she knew Jesus. And I think that's what's behind Dallas Willard's quote, in a way. Not that we've all come from terrible backgrounds and have that same story, but, but if we really were... I don't, do you ever feel challenged about that yourself? I, I feel challenged about that. Why do I look so the same as everybody else? Why do I talk about the same things when actually I believe, on a Sunday at least, that I'm filled with the spirit of the creator of the universe? Why does that make so much little difference when I'm talking to my neighbours? And, and, so I think it's a huge missionary challenge. But that is the missionary challenge. The missionary challenge is, isn't how can I get my neighbours to church? The missionary, is, the missionary challenge for me is how, how can I be more full of Jesus so that my neighbours see something different when they talk to me across the fence? Or when I buy my mints on the way down the Gloucester Road and I go into the shop and have a very brief conversation. How could I leave something of the colour and the flavour of Jesus wherever I go? That's, that's the missionary, the discipleship missionary challenge. And maybe you've got that completely sussed, in which case I don't expect to see you for the next three sessions. Cause, but but that's kind of the territory we're going to be thinking about. How, how can we be authentic disciples of Jesus Christ? So just for a couple of minutes again. Just have a little chat around the table about anything that's kind of struck you in that, in that section there, about the move from church as come to us, church as let's go to them, but let's go to them as different people. Okay, so just have a little chat, whatever's registered, and then we'll move into the home straight. So I'm not going to uh, invite feedback at this point, so I'm just aware the time's going on. And on balance, you'd probably be happier to go on time than to have feedback, I'm guessing. So, so last, last little section, and, uh, and, and then we're done this evening. But uh, thanks for, for joining in, and just, uh, I hope what, what we're doing tonight is kind of setting some trains of thought going and, and, and just uh, raising a few issues that maybe we want to follow through with as we meet again. So just the last session, just thinking about discipleship itself briefly, because we are going to return to these themes, but just to open that up a little Clearly, the language of discipleship is the most common language that's used in the Gospels themselves to describe followers of Jesus. Uh, over 300 times in the Gospels, disciples are mentioned. And uh, one of the most, uh, one, of, one of the earliest uh, insights we get into what discipleship is, is the calling of those first fishermen on the beach. Uh, as Jesus walked along the shore and he saw two brothers and he called them to himself. Casting a net into the lake, uh, for they were fishermen. I used to think that was a redundant phrase. Why else would you cast a, lake, a net into the lake? But then I said that somewhere thinking I was being rather clever, and somebody came up afterwards and corrected me and told me that if you were just an individual fishing, you would use a line. If you were casting a net, you were a fisherman. So there you are, I was humbled and humiliated. <laughs> that was in Exmouth, and I've never been back since. <laughs> um, anyway, they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you, fishers, uh, make you fish for people. And, 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 the, and the very first thing about discipleship, and, and something we'll come back to next, next time, 
is, is this idea that the first thing about discipleship is the call to, the call to be with Jesus. That discipleship is, before it's anything else, a transforming friendship with Jesus Christ. And to try and make discipleship something that we do or a set of things that we know is to start in the wrong place. There are things to know and there are certainly things to do, but those things are done out of a deep personal relationship, a transforming friendship. That's the title of a lovely book written back in the middle of the 20th century by a Methodist minister called Leslie Weatherhead. And uh, it's, a, it's a lovely book, a transforming friendship uh, with Jesus. And uh, I like that model, that, that idea. That's what discipleship is. Sometimes it can be almost like a technical word. And training courses in discipleship, often like a mini graduate theology schools. To be a disciple, you need to know this about God, the Son, the Spirit, <coughs> prayer, the Bible. Great, you've done the 12 sessions, now you're a disciple. Now you can start teaching in Sunday school. Whatever, you know. So this kind of mini graduation process that, that happens. But actually, discipleship is about a call to be a close friend of Jesus. And everything else flows out of that friendship. And we're going to keep returning to that because it's such a fundamental point. That friendship, the word, the word disciple, and I'm fairly sure that you, you, you will know this, if you've heard of Dallas Willard and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you will know this next fact. Um, which is that the word disciple could equally well be translated Apprentice. And it would be interesting to read through your Gospels again. And wherever you come across the word disciple, read the word apprentice. Because disciple has become an almost semi-technical word. Whereas apprentice is, for us still, an ordinary everyday word. Much the same as the word deacon would have been in, in, in the first century. An ordinary everyday word. And so to think of ourselves as apprentices, that discipleship is a lifelong apprenticeship with Jesus is again a, a, a very helpful model, I think, for what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship. An apprentice clearly is somebody who lives alongside somebody closely enough and for long enough in order that they can learn to do exactly what the master can already do. You want to learn to make cakes, you apprentice yourself to a baker. You want to learn to make shoes, you apprentice yourself to a shoemaker. You want to learn how to live life in the kingdom of God, you apprentice yourself to Jesus Christ. You live alongside someone in order to learn to live life the way that they live life and to do the things that they can do. And if you're a really good student, maybe one day you'll do even greater things, somebody once said. <clears throat> so the point of being a disciple is not to learn religious stuff, it's to learn how to live life the way that Jesus lived it. And, that, and one of the big questions for, for, to think about our own discipleship is, what would my life look like if Jesus was living it? What would he do with my resources, with my finances, with my house, with my skills, with my gifts, with my career? Would he even have it in the first place? It's, it's a very, it can lead in some very profound directions. How would Jesus live my life if he was me? That's the discipleship question, because I'm trying to apprentice myself to Jesus, to live long enough with him, to be in a close transforming friendship with him, such that I am living my life in the way that he would live it. That's a really profound thing. It's much more profound than learning a few facts about the Trinity and, and, and then becoming a Sunday school teacher. Incidentally, I love learning facts about the Trinity and I honour Sunday school teachers. So that's not a negative statement about either of those things. I'm just saying discipleship is much more profound and everyday than that. Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room in John 20. After his uh, crucifixion, they were hiding, scared. And he comes into the room, and a locked room appears amongst them and says, Peace be with you. And you know the next words. As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. You are now sent into your day jobs, into your communities, into your neighbourhoods, as Jesus was sent. To embody the kingdom of God so that other people might see what it looks like when God is king, where you are. That's what Jesus did. Show people what it looked like when God is king in the earth. The sick get healed. The lonely get befriended. The lost sheep get brought into the fold. That's what it looks like when God is king. And as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus said, I now send you. That's John's version of the Great Commission. After he said, go into all the world and make disciples, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. But it's the same kind of commission. Now, <clears throat> therefore, um, discipleship as apprenticeship is, is, is not about being an appreciative audience. 
Often we can be an appreciative audience of Jesus and admire the things that he did and admire the person that he is, but not really get involved in his life. Discipleship is about learning to live the life, not just appreciating the life that was lived. I'm going to write that down. I might want to say it again sometime. Even as I said it, I thought, yes, that's that's good. Um, It's not about being a student. Uh, in my scraps of spare time, I love doing woodwork. I make bits of furniture. I make furniture, I have a speciality. I make furniture for people with uneven floors. <laughs> because then they're more at level. Got an even floor, don't ask me to make you a table. But anyway, I've got all these books at home. When I got enthusiastic about this a few years back, I'm trying to learn how to do all this stuff properly. So I've got all these books about making joints and dovetails and tenons and housing joints and all this sort of stuff. And actually, I must admit, I'm pretty good at them. Until I actually started to make one. I could describe a secret housing joint to you in great detail and tell you exactly how to make it. But when I try to make it, it doesn't quite work the same. In other words, I could be a fantastic student of woodwork, but actually, if I were an apprentice, I know I'd be expected to make the blooming thing, not just talk about it. As Christians, to be an apprentice to Jesus means that it's not enough just to be able to talk his life to talk his story, to be students of who he is and was, is actually to live the life that he lived. That's what it means to be a disciple. The goal is to live, learn to live the master's life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the hope for the world. I'm not one of many lights. I am the light of the world. But then he turned to his disciples, didn't he, in Matthew's Gospel and said, you're the light of the world. The baton's passed to you. You've got to live this life too. So it's a, a world-changing partnership, but one not where we get sent out by ourselves. These lovely words at the end of Matthew's Gospel, are surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That it's not discipleship, it's not Jesus sitting in church sending us out to do tough things through the week. The heart of what it means to be a missionary is to know that Jesus is already there with us and to work out what he's doing in that place and what he's saying to us about that that place. It's about this abiding, world-changing partnership. So what's discipleship? This isn't all-encompassing, but I think these are really important themes. A transforming friendship, a lifelong apprenticeship, and a world-changing partnership. And we're going to kind of return to some of those things directly and obliquely over over the coming weeks. Two more slides. If we're going to follow this through, back to Dallas Willard one more time, there he is. He had this um, acronym, VIM. So if you, want to, if you want to take this discipleship thing seriously, you need VIM. Do you remember VIM? Is anyone old enough to remember VIM? <laughs> the scouring. My, my, my dad was a farm worker, and uh, when he came home sort of covered in grime, he used to use VIM to wash his hands. Amazing, yeah, I know. Yeah. He died down strangely. Anyway, um, no, he didn't. So that was a, a sad joke. Um, VIM. What's he talking about? He says, firstly, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be an apprentice of Jesus, if you want to live your life like Jesus would live life in the office or whatever, firstly, you need to understand, you have a vision. You need, you need to, what, what would that look like? You need to be clear, not just a good intention, but you need to see what it would look like. What is a disciple? What does it mean to live the Jesus life with my kids, in my classroom, in my hospital ward, or wherever I spend my life? What's the vision? We're going to be thinking about that. Secondly, you need the intention. Do I really want to pick up my cross every day and live the Jesus life. Now we, we will discuss that a bit here, but really only each of you individually can answer that question. It's relatively cost-free to be a good church member. According to Jesus, it will cost you everything to be a disciple. Or at least if you're not willing for it to cost you everything, then he said, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you're willing to pick up your cross every day and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So there's a big cost. Do I really want this? Is this just a nice way of having a jacket potato and a mildly, you know, okay talk? Uh, makes a change from home group. You know, it, it, what, why am I here? And, and what's God saying to me? And where am I at with this? Because our culture will not be changed by people who don't mean it. In fact, that's one thing that will turn the culture off. They see through it straight away. If it's just words, if it's just a hobby, people are looking for integrity. 
That's why the current Pope is gathering so many more millions back into the Catholic Church. People want somebody who actually walk the walk. Whether or not Jeremy Corbyn had the same effect on the Labour Party remains to be seen, but I'm not going to go there at all. Sorry, I've mentioned it. And so, the point is, and it's a serious point, an important point, and you need to read your own hearts on this. I can't put it there. But is the intention there? Do I really want this? And the third thing, if I do really want it, how? What's the means? How could I follow through with this? How, how could I actually move a little bit further? Remember, an apprentice is always a learner. So we're not saying, how can I get this right so I don't have to think about it anymore, but how can I, for the rest of my life, put myself in the position where I'm an apprentice of Jesus Christ? This may not sound like good news, but you never graduate from this particular college. It's a lifelong learning process. We're lifelong learners. So we're going to think about, over these next few weeks, just some of the very, very basic core elements of what it might mean to pick this up. And one of the things that, that... bits of language that we use is we need to think about it as a way of life. Not a course that we do or an occasional set of commitments, but this is now kind of, these, these themes are going to become part of my life. These are things that I want to be part of me. So eventually I don't need to think about them, they're just there. They're just the way I am. And, and these four things kind of build off what I've, I've just been saying. Um, and, and the first element of the way of life is a, it's a deep desire to grow in the knowledge of God. That, that personal transforming friendship I talked about earlier is actually how on earth could I know God better and better and better and have more and more and more of him in my life. That's the primary discipleship. Because the friendship with Jesus is the main thing about discipleship, that has to be the main thing that we keep paying attention to. And we'll think about that a bit more. One of the answers to that is by giving ourselves to what the church through the ages have understood to be the ways that we do get to know God better and better, which is the use of the classic spiritual disciplines uh, of, of the Christian faith. And we're going to think about those a little, a little bit as well. This is a port left, starboard right moment. These are not things you haven't heard of, but they're things that, in my experience, myself, also my observation of others, they're things that most Christians would nod to, and most Christians, if they're honest, would admit they struggle with. So we're going to think about those things a bit. We're going to think about what it would mean to be an everyday missionary, to think of my life as being about being a missionary where where I am. Engaging in mission, not as an occasional activity that the church runs, but as just what I do as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And uh, the fourth thing, which is the bit that holds those together and is maybe a little bit new in in that mix of well-known things, is how on earth can we keep on with this? How can, how can we help one another with this? And we're going to think about the importance of, of one another. Accountability, to use not a very popular word. Uh, accountability in this walk of discipleship. And that's a really important factor because that is, diagrammatically I've tried to represent this, what holds those other things together and stops them just drifting apart and becoming yesterday's dream. What keeps it all in one is actually this idea of intentional relationships built around accountability to this way of life. So we're going to think about this. You don't have to take it on board, you don't have to like it, but that's what we're going to think about, and uh, we'll see where we go with it all. Because, as I said at the beginning, final slide. For me, if we don't pay attention to discipleship, but try and do church, or try and do mission, or try and form leaders, or try and share the gospel... If at the heart of that there isn't a life filled with the love and concern and compassion and power of Jesus Christ, then all of those things are almost meaningless and possibly impossible. So the missing piece, the piece that goes in the middle there, not that mission isn't important, not that church isn't important, not because, I'm not saying any of those things, but for me and what my contention is that actually discipleship is the thing that sits in the middle there. It makes sense of what church is for. It makes sense of how we do mission. It makes sense of how we share the gospel. It makes sense of what it means to lead other people. Uh, so that's what we're going to think about. Sorry. Smile, nod, grunt. <laughs> okay. Just for two minutes before we close, what I'd like to just share, if you're able, 
no pressure on this, but if you're able, one thing that you're going to t- take away to, to think about more from what, what we've been sharing tonight. What, what's your kind of takeaway thought or intention or question uh, that you're going to carry home? <coughs> just have a think and then maybe just share it with the, rather than going to a big group, just share it with the person next to you. That will save a little bit of time. Folks, I'm just going to pray, if I may, before we break up. And then there's one advert. We can't be a Christian if we don't have notices, can we? It can't be a proper church meeting if we don't have notices. So I've got one notice and one prayer, and then we're done. So let's just, just, just uh, be quiet and pause. And remember that we are in the presence of the creator of the universe, who by some miracle of grace knows us and loves us, and calls us to be his daughter and his son. Father, we're, we're amazed and staggered that you should even pay attention to people like us. What are we that you should pay attention to us? And yet somehow we have come to believe because you've shown us your love in the shape of your son given for us. And so we want to say, even as we close this time together, we love you because you first loved us. And whatever else we do or don't take away, I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would reveal again to every heart here the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of your love for each person that's come here tonight. We thank you, Father, for your gift of your Son, but also for the gift of your Spirit. And we pray even now for that fresh touch of your Holy Spirit on our lives. Lord, we confess that we cannot change ourselves. We cannot be the people that we want to be, never mind the people that you want us to be. And so we pray that even now, in the quietness of this closing moment, you would touch us with your spirit. Open our hearts to receive that life-giving water and to hear the voice that says, you are my daughter and I love you. You're my son and I'm really pleased with you. We love you, Lord, and we want to be more useful in your hands. So I pray that as we think about all that we've touched on tonight and all that we will consider when we meet again, that somehow these thoughts and ideas and words would be blown into life by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us, keep changing us, until we look just like Jesus Christ. In his name and for his sake I pray. Amen. Thank you folks. The advert, if I can just cut in. Um, On Sunday, October the 4th, which is a fortnight's time, at Thornbury Baptist Church, Geraldine Fatty, of Cairndrow Baptist Church fame uh, is coming to do an evening uh, with her husband. Uh, an evening with Geraldine Matty is what it's called. So we're not too sure what she's doing. I have spoken to her on the phone and I'm none the wiser. But, but um, <laughs> uh, knowing Geraldine a little bit, it'll be great. So uh, if you're not doing anything and you want to come up to Thornbury uh, at 6.30pm to 8 on October the 4th, um, and meet Geraldine and be blessed with some music and testimony and worship and whatever else she gets us doing. Uh, it'd be lovely to see you. There's a few flyers I'll leave on, on the table here if you want to take one away or give to a friend. Okay, that's it. Thank you.